Amen. Please be seated. This morning, I'd like for you to turn to Mark chapter 5. And the reason I want to use this chapter this morning is because Mark chapter 5 is a really, really, really weird chapter. If you've ever read through this chapter, it feels like a bunch of random things that are just thrown together. It feels like Mark chapter 5 were like, like the leftover bits Mark had when he completed his gospel. He still thought they were important, and he decided to just run them all together. A story usually follows some sort of progression, some sequence of events, right? Usually there's a person or a group of people and something happens to them, and whatever it is that happens to them becomes the catalyst for what will happen next in the story. Almost every single story you can think of follows that very simple framework, except for Mark 5. It doesn't follow that line of storytelling at all. Mark chapter 5 has three very different stories, stories that appear to be utterly disconnected from one another. The first story is about a man possessed by a legion of demons. The second is about a leader of a synagogue begging Jesus to help him. The third is about the healing of a woman with an issue of blood. And these three stories aren't just kind of different. No, they are different in some very major ways. For instance, think about the characters in each story. In the first, there's a wild man. No name is given. In the second story, you have the ruler of a synagogue identified by his exact name, Jairus. But in the third, there's a nameless woman that by law shouldn't even be present among the crowd. The tension in each story is also different. In the first story, Jesus is dealing with possession. In the second story, Jesus deals with death. And in the third story, it's a healing. Even the way that Jesus achieves the miraculous in each is different. In the first story, Jesus casts demons into a pig. In the second, he raises a little girl from the dead. And in the third, a woman is healed just by touching his garment. And we could go on and on like, like this. I've listed six more key differences between these three stories. And I'm sure if we wanted to, we could sit here and list 15 more. So these three stories are very, very different. But for as different as they are, these three stories are actually united to one another. There is one continuous theme that runs through all of these stories. And what I want to do this morning is uncover that theme with you. And I want to do so by going through each story as it's found in Mark chapter 5. So if you haven't yet, please grab your Bibles. Turn to Mark chapter 5, starting in the first verse, and let's hop right in. <clears throat> so Mark 5 begins with Jesus and the disciples setting foot on the distant shore of the Sea of Galilee. And almost immediately, they're met by a demon-possessed man. And this isn't the typical possessed guy. No, 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 no. This is a demon-possessed man that roams the hills, howling in the night, cutting himself with stones, and he lives in a cemetery. Guys, if you wanted to construct the epitome of a Jewish boogeyman, this is it. You can't do better than this. But when this, this crazed, howling, self-mutilating demoniac lays eyes on Jesus, he understands right away who he's dealing with. The demon-possessed man runs towards Jesus, falls at his feet, and says, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? These demons know exactly who Jesus was. They knew him to be the Son of the Most High. Jesus then casts the demons out of the man, and all of a sudden the man who was possessed was now free. 
So how does this man, a man who spent months, perhaps even years of his life in absolute opposition to God, respond to the Son of God standing before him? We'll look in verse 18. It reads, As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This man is freed from his possession, and the text doesn't say that he dances or he celebrates or that he even wants to run to tell people what happened to him. No. What's the very first thing the text says he did? He begged Jesus that he might be with him. This man responded to being freed from a legion of demons by asking Jesus if he could just stay near him, just be close to him and follow him. And as far as I'm concerned, that is exactly right. That is 100% correct. Here's what the possessed man got right. You don't need something from Jesus. You need Jesus. Jesus doesn't want something from you. He wants you. If you think that the grace of God, that the forgiveness of God, if you think that these are, are like things that God gives you, if you think God's mercy and love for you are like things that, that emanate out from God and somehow float down to you, then my friends, with all due respects, you are mistaken. When God shows grace to you, when God forgives your sins and has mercy upon you and loves you, He's not giving you things. He's giving you Himself. He's not giving you a thing called love. No, He is love. And as a God of love, He makes Himself present to you. God is giving you His very life. He's giving you His very heart and mind. And what Jesus asks for in return is that we do the same. He doesn't want your stuff. He wants you. And when the man possessed by a legion of demons is healed, he gets that exactly right. All he wants to do is to be with Jesus, and all he has to offer is himself. And that seems to be okay, because that's all Jesus is asking for. The man healed of the demon possession got it exactly right. But what about the next story? What about Jairus and his daughter? Well, let's look. <clears throat> so Jesus and the disciples, they cross the Sea of Galilee, and they land on the other side. And as soon as they touch shore... A great crowd gathers around them, and among them is a man named Jairus. He's one of the rulers of the synagogue. Jairus runs out into the crowd to Jesus, and he falls at his feet, and he says this, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she might be made well and live. Now the text seems to say that they both set off immediately. And that makes sense. If I, if I came to you and I said, hey, quick, come help me. One of my children, are, they're choking and they're about to die. I would hope you got up immediately and ran as fast as you could towards my dying child. I would like to think that as you ran, you were of a, a singular focus with one thing on your mind. Get to this kid fast and help before it's too late. That's exactly what you would expect to see in this story, right? Jesus and Jairus running straight to this little girl's aid. But the story doesn't seem to happen like that. In this story, 
Just as Jesus and Jairus start making their way through this crowd, just as they start making their way to the side of this little girl that's dying, Jesus stops in his tracks and says, who touched me? Now, if we're running through a crowd of people in order to save my child from death, and then you abruptly stop and said, hang on, Bubba, did you hear that? I would be stunned. I would think you were playing some sort of cruel joke or, or you were secretly malicious, maybe psychotic. I, I wouldn't know. But there's not a person in this room that would think that stopping and asking such a silly question was the right thing to do. So can you imagine what, me, what was, must be going through the mind of Jairus when Jesus stops and asks the question, who touched me? Jesus asking who touched me in the midst of a crowd of people must have been a bewildering thing for Jairus to hear. It must have been confusing for every single person who heard Jesus say it, actually. Every single person except for one. The person who wasn't confused by that question was the one person that Jesus was talking to. The woman who was just healed by reaching out and touching the garment of Jesus, she wasn't confused by that question at all. She was the only one who truly understood it. And what was her response? Look at verse 33. It says, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She knew what she had done, and Jesus had called her on it. She knew that the law of Moses said that this disease made her unclean, and the law of Moses would have required her to stay on the outskirts of town. It would have required her to stay away from people in general lest she make them unclean as well. But here she is. And not only is she in the midst of a crowd bumping into people and running the risk of making every single one of them unclean, she does all of that while reaching out to touch the hem of a garment of someone she believes to be a holy man. She dares to extend her hand and touch someone pure and run the risk of defiling him. But judging from the response of Jesus, he didn't seem to mind at all that she had touched him, does he? Look at verse 34. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus doesn't seem the least bit concerned that this unclean woman, that it was even possible for her to defile him. He doesn't seem the least bit concerned that this unclean woman could have in any way compromised his holiness or purity. As a matter of fact, the opposite seemed to be true. When this unclean woman came into contact with the purity of Jesus, Jesus wasn't sullied. No, the woman was made clean. And guys, as far as I'm concerned, that is exactly right. That is 100% correct. Here's what this story gets right. This woman was the very definition of unclean, but that did not stop her from reaching out to Jesus. As a matter of fact, her motivation for reaching out to Jesus was her uncleanness. And maybe, maybe you're like this woman. Maybe you're unclean and desperate. Maybe, maybe you're wretched and eat up with sin and shame and your life is going absolutely nowhere. But unlike this woman, you are unwilling to reach out to God. I know so many people like that. I was a person like that once, feeling like I had sinned so much that my problems were so grotesque and unattractive to God that he must find them revolting, that he must find me revolting. They see themselves as people who are so degraded that coming into the presence of God is impossible. And if we 
ever worked up the courage to reach out to Jesus, we couldn't do it in our present state. No, before they could reach out to Jesus, they would need to clean themselves up a bit first. You know people like that? I'm sure you do. Because there's millions of people in this world and maybe even a few in this room that are convinced that they need to straighten their lives out before God can even tolerate looking at them. But my friend, here's the truth. The things about you that are shameful and cause you to hide your face from the Lord, the things about you that are sinful and make you unclean before a holy God can only be straightened out and purified in one place. Your sin has no other place to go than to be at the feet of Jesus. And whatever garbage you throw at him, whatever sickness you have, however sinful you may be, God will not be made unclean when you take your impurities to him. No, his purity is greater than your uncleanness. God's mercy is greater than your sinfulness. The faithfulness of God is greater than humanity's capacity to betray him. And the story of the woman with the issue of blood gets that exactly right. But as the story of this woman concludes with Jesus telling her to go in peace, look what happens in verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Jairus had feared this. No doubt he was, he was terrified at the thought of hearing those exact words, your daughter is dead. And now his worst nightmare had come true. His little girl was gone and there was nothing he could do about it. Jairus had dared to go all in on Jesus, to trust Jesus. Inside of the whole town, Jairus threw himself at the feet of Jesus and begged him for help. As one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus risked everything by consorting with Jesus like this. The religious elite were no friend of Jesus, and Jairus knew that. Jairus knew that if he went to Jesus and asked him for help, no matter how it turned out, he would face severe backlash from the Pharisees. And as Jairus heard the news that his daughter was dead, it seemed like maybe everything was ruined. It seemed like everything from his career to his family, his friends, were all now lost on top of losing his daughter. But before Jairus even had time to react to the news, Jesus tells him something that kindles the heart of Jairus, a small hope. Jesus tells him, don't fear, only believe. And with that, they set off together to go see his daughter. Jesus arrives at the house of Jairus with James, John, and Peter, and the house is already filled with people mourning. And Jesus asks them to go wait outside. Jesus, James, John, Peter, and all the girls, parents, and siblings, they all enter the house, and perhaps for the first time, Jairus sees the embodiment of everything he had feared. There was his little girl, her lifeless body just laying on a bed. So what does Jesus do? He walks over to this little girl. Jesus walks over and stands before the absolute worst thing that's ever happened to Jairus, and he picks up her cold, lifeless hand and says, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And to the amazement of every single person in that room, the little girl does exactly that. 
Jairus had reached out in desperation to Jesus. Jairus didn't throw himself at the feet of Jesus and say, teach me, Rabbi. Jairus didn't fall before the feet of Jesus and even say, forgive me of my many sins. Jairus didn't confess him to be the Christ or seek to follow Jesus. No, Jairus fell at the feet of Jesus because he had nowhere left to turn. He had reached the end of his rope and everything was crashing in around him and then he went to Jesus. And this didn't seem to make Jesus even bad an eye. Jesus didn't hold Jairus accountable because he looked for help everywhere else first. Jesus didn't give Jairus a hard time about being picked last. He never mentioned that, there, that, that it was the fear of Jairus, that it was the fear that his daughter's illness might claim her life that finally drove Jairus to Jesus. Jesus doesn't mention a word about any of that. You know what Jesus does? He responded to Jairus with love. He responded by walking straight into Jairus' worst nightmare and, bringing, and brings it to an end. And guys, as far as I'm concerned, that is exactly right. That is 100% correct. If you reach out to Jesus in desperation, if you reach out to Jesus because you've tried everything else and you have nowhere left to turn, he will not take offense of being your last pick. He will not hold it against you that you sought help everywhere else before coming to him. No. He will respond to you just as he did for Jairus by walking with you into the deepest tragedies of your life, and he will heal those tragedies in ways you cannot currently imagine. Mark chapter 5 is about three very different people. Each have their own particular needs, each have their own histories, full of their own traumas and fears. Each come to Jesus for different reasons, each taking different paths. But what unifies this whole chapter is that every single one of them share one thing. They fell at the feet of Jesus and cried out for his help. Every single one of them went to Jesus and every single one of them was received by him. You see, it doesn't matter all that much to Jesus exactly how much or how someone comes to him. The only thing that matters to Jesus is that you do. Are you demon-possessed? Doesn't matter. Come on. Are you so unclean that no one wants to do anything with you? It doesn't matter. Come on. Are you in desperation so deep and in need of the help of Jesus that you look everywhere in the world and he's the last place you go? That doesn't matter. Just go to him. And the good news I have for you this day is that nothing has changed. Whatever the circumstances are that have brought you to the feet of Jesus, whatever twists and turns your life has taken, whatever junk you have accumulated along your way, all of that is behind you now. What matters most isn't the path you've taken to Jesus, but that you presently find yourself at his feet. Amen.